Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you listen most. If you're looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. everybody. Again, uh, my name is Colton Tatham, and I am Journey's West Campus Pastor. So if you're new here or you're listening online, uh, again, thanks for joining us for worship. Um, some of you might know that my wife, Kristen, she's in the back right now, um, works over at a childhood, early childhood center on the west side of town. And one of the games, you know, children sometimes play is a game that's called Hot and Cold. Anybody familiar with Hot and Cold? Ooh, only not, not very many. Well, that's great. If you haven't played hot and cold before, that's, oh, that's awesome. I'm going I'm to tell you how this game is played. Uh, hot and cold is a game that starts with all the children in the room closing their eyes or covering their eyes. Uh, while their eyes are shut, the teacher hides an object somewhere in the room for them to find. Uh, once the object is hidden, the teacher says, go, and the children open their eyes and they start searching for the object. Uh, this is a great game to play with little kids. It gets very violent the older the kids get. So, while everyone searches, the teacher shares hints with the class. Uh, when somebody moves away from the object, the teacher tells them that they're getting cold. Uh, when somebody moves closer to the object, they say they're getting warm and then warmer, and then they're red hot when they're right about to find what they're looking for. Uh, in a game of hot and cold, hot means that you're close to finding what you're looking for. Cold means that you're far away. You know, perhaps the most fun part of the game is that it doesn't matter whether you're red hot, you're warm, or cold. You can be as hot as the sun and still lose the game. Winning the game is not a matter of how close you get to the object. The winner is the one who actually finds what they're looking for. When it comes to the way that people seek after salvation, it can be a bit like a game of hot and cold. People try to find salvation in all sorts of different ways, but the approach that really matters isn't the one that brings you close to salvation. The approach that matters most is the one that actually leads you to find salvation. When it comes to salvation, settling for close enough is not a game plan for success. You will either find salvation or you won't. In today's message, we're going to reflect on Jesus' words in Luke 13, 22-30 that Jack read for us. And sort of like in a game of hot and cold, we're going to examine three approaches Jesus references that people try to take in order to find salvation. One approach will lead to people getting in. Two approaches will lead to people missing out. Now, the first approach we're going to look at is to wait for salvation. That's to wait for salvation. There are many who don't even try to look for it. They just wait for salvation to come to them. Contrary to what we might expect, those who wait for salvation aren't always passive. Uh, for you see, because sometimes there are people who wander in and out of their lives who claim to have found salvation. When that happens, 
they become curious, and they wait to be convinced. In a game of hot and cold, these curious waiters tend to be pretty lukewarm. Someone might tell them exactly where to find salvation, and they'll respond with cool, skeptical curiosity. To a Christian, they may ask questions like, if Jesus is really the Savior, why won't He just show me a sign? If Jesus really loves me, why does He let such awful things happen in the world? If God is really that good, what makes you so sure Jesus is the only way? The curious person waits to be convinced, but as we'll see, this approach is a path to missing out. In Luke 13, we're told Jesus finds one such curious person. This person is literally waiting in one of the towns Jesus visits as he starts his journey to Jerusalem. In verses 22 through 23, we learn this person is curious about salvation. He or she has made their way up to the front of the crowd and manages to ask Jesus a question. Now imagine that you're this person. You've heard rumors about the Messiah, a teacher named Jesus who has been performing miracles throughout the countryside. And you've heard he preaches truth like the Son of God. And you've heard he puts the wisdom of the holiest priests to shame in debates about the Torah and prophets. You've never had the ambition to go find this Jesus yourself, but as fate would have it, he shows up one day in your hometown. So if it were you, and you could ask Jesus any one question, what do you think you would ask him? Would you ask him to show you a sign to prove himself? Would you ask him to explain the conflict between good and evil? Would you ask him if he really was the only Messiah? You're in this bustling crowd, and you've only got time to ask one question. What question would that be? The curious person who waits for salvation to come to them doesn't ask questions to know the truth. The curious person who waits for salvation to come to them, asks questions to be convinced. In Luke 13, of all of the questions this anonymous person could have asked Jesus, they ask this, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Lord, will those who are saved be few? What a strange question to test Jesus with. The question is not, Lord, how can I be saved? The question is, Lord, how many will be saved? So why ask such a speculative question? Well, to better understand what prompted this question, we need to understand the context of the book of Luke a little bit. During this time in Israel, there were plenty of other religious teachers besides Jesus. Jesus wasn't the only one. And in verse 23, this curious person tests Jesus with a question designed to ascertain whether his message about salvation is the same as the other teachers or not. The predominant teaching back then was that 
all Israelites would have a share in the world to come. Other teachers taught that God had set his covenant love on Israel, and therefore every good Israelite would take part in the future kingdom that the coming Messiah would restore. If you were a good Israelite, then you had little to worry about with respect to your salvation. This is why the curious questioner wants to know the amount of those who are going to be saved. This curious person is hedging his or her bets based upon what others have taught about salvation, not what Jesus has taught about salvation. Because you see, if all are going to be saved, if most are going to be saved, then there's really little reason to worry about salvation. But if those who are saved are few, then this would be cause for great alarm. The crowds would have known Jesus was different from the other teachers in Israel, but how different was he? In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus condemned the other religious teachers. He said, Woe to you! You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Then in Luke 12, Jesus tells a crowd of thousands that everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Then at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' message of salvation couldn't be more different than the world's. Other religious teachers taught that one's national ethnic identity, one's moral merit, those were the prerequisites for salvation. But Jesus taught that in order to be saved, it's not enough to be born an Israelite. It's not enough to become some sanctimonious religious elite. It's not enough to just follow the law if you cannot fulfill the law. Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. He defies the most skeptical questioners' expectations. He shows the crowd around him that he has the power to heal, the power to cast out demons, the power to bring the dead back to life. And he teaches the crowd that there is no heritage you need to be born with, there is no condition that you need to meet, and there is no status that you need to attain before you can be saved. To those who feel that the world looks down on them, Jesus' message is one of great hope. But to those who feel entitled to everything they've earned, Jesus' message is a grave warning. Jesus teaches that any person can be saved, but not every person will be saved. When King Herod and the other religious leaders in Israel heard that this was the kind of message Jesus was preaching, it's no surprise that they wanted to put him to death. And even in those who wait for salvation to come to them, Jesus' words, though, uh, his presence can stir a sense of curiosity. The nature of the question we see here in this verse uh, shows us that this person is somebody who was familiar with Jesus. He's heard of Jesus before. In fact, they refer to Jesus as Lord. 
Sensing that they had already had some sort of familiarity with Jesus and his teaching, they asked, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, if it were me, a simple yes or no from Jesus would have been sufficient. Um, but Jesus doesn't answer questions this way, ever. Instead, he redirects the question away from the one person who asked it and directs his answer to the entire crowd. Look at Luke 13, 24. And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Again, this curious person asked the question, how many will be saved? But Jesus answers the question, the more important question, how can I be saved? What this means for us is quite profound. Jesus doesn't always answer questions on our terms. You may be curious, and you may have plenty of legitimate questions, but it is important for you to know that Jesus gives us the answers that we need to hear, not the answers that we want to hear. Matthew Henry puts it this way, Our Savior did not give a direct answer, for He came to guide men's consciences, not to gratify their curiosity. Ask not how many shall be saved, rather shall I be one of them. Jesus' response makes his point clear. Don't just wait for salvation to come to you. It may seem good to be curious about salvation, but curiosity alone is not enough to save you. All throughout the Bible, we have examples of people who were curious about salvation, but they seemed to miss out. Curious people who were so consumed with waiting for the answers that they wanted that they missed the answers that they needed. In the four Gospels, we meet the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Time after time, these religious leaders in Israel incessantly barrage Jesus with questions concerning his teachings, all while their underlying agenda was to find faults and inconsistencies in his words. They waited so long to be convinced they were right, they missed out. In the book of Acts, the apostle Paul was brought on trial before King Herod Agrippa, the king listened to Paul's entire testimony, even asking questions with great interest in what he had to say. But by the end of the trial, the king, with all his power and all his luxury, remained unconvinced by Paul's message of salvation, and he too missed out. It can be good to be curious, but sometimes the drive to play the devil's advocate, the empirical objections, the comfort of self-satisfaction, the piles of endless questions can keep the curious person waiting to be convinced from actually finding salvation. If you're curious about salvation, then the utmost question you need to settle today is this, Jesus, am I getting into heaven or am I missing out? 
Will I be getting in or will I be missing out? Someone who curiously waits for salvation to come to him or her will likely stay cold in a game of hot and cold. Someone may tell them exactly where salvation is, but unless they can be convinced on their own speculative terms, they may never truly find salvation. There is an approach, though, that's much warmer than curiosity. This approach can even get red hot to finding salvation and still end up empty. If the first approach is to wait for salvation, the second approach is to seek salvation. Seeking salvation can draw you to Jesus, but as we'll see, proximity alone is not enough to save us. Remember how Jesus answers the question in verse 24. Look right there. Jesus says, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Just like in a game of hot and cold, a seeker can get much closer to salvation than a waiter. A seeker can be red hot to finding it, but they can still miss out. This means seekers can be drawn into churches. They can be drawn into small groups. They can even be drawn into reading God's Word. They can be drawn into following Jesus, just like the crowds followed Jesus in Luke 13. And as we'll see, some of these seekers will still miss out. Now, my parents, growing up, we had a security system installed in our home. Um, and the best thing about the security system was that it had an actual motion detector um, by the front door. It was really cool. Um, I felt like I was in one of those movies at the time, like James Bond or Mission Impossible, um, because even when the alarm wasn't set, the motion detector would light up every time like it sensed you moving. So obviously I would pretend to be a CIA super agent, and I would slowly move across the room trying not to set it off. Now the question that jumps out to me when reading these verses in Luke 13 is this, how close? How close do we need to get to Jesus in order to be saved? The way that many seek Jesus and they seek after him is really no different than the way I tried to avoid the motion detector. Rather than disarming the alarm, many seekers are convinced that all they need to do to find salvation is simply get as close to Jesus as possible while clinging to all the things they know they need to let go of. As I mentioned before, there is a large crowd surrounding Jesus in Luke 13. And these people are just about as close to, as you can get to the incarnate Son of God. I mean, there are people who are close enough to touch Jesus here. Even so, Jesus' teachings to the crowd make it clear that standing in his presence is no guarantee that you will be saved. In verses 25 through 27, Jesus warns the crowd with a stern parable about the kingdom of God. Look with me here at what Jesus says. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door 
And you began to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. How close is close enough? Clearly, it is not close enough to see Jesus. It's not close enough to be in the crowd around Jesus. It's not even close enough to ask Jesus a question. It's not close enough to hear his answer. It's not close enough to hear his teachings. It's not close enough to eat and drink in his presence. It is not close enough to be knocking on the door of Jesus' house. So how close is close enough? We find our answer here where Jesus presents two kinds of people. One person who enters the Lord's house and one person who wants to enter but the door has already been shut. The point here is that those who actually enter the Lord's house will be saved. Everyone else will miss out. If you want to be close enough to Jesus to be saved, then you need to be confident that he will let you enter his house. It is a good thing to seek for salvation, but do not confuse seeking salvation with finding salvation. It's important that we notice the precise language Jesus uses when answering the question. First, he makes a statement in the present tense, saying, strive presently to enter. Then he makes a statement in the future tense, saying, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter. So these are people that will seek in the future. Finally, he tells us a parable about this future, and he says, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door. The implication here is that the door to the Lord's house will only be open for a limited amount of time. The door is open right now in the present, but it will not always remain open in the future. Even though all have been invited to this open house, many will not come or they will come too late. Some will wait, and they just won't make it. Some will seek, but they will start to seek too late, and they won't make it. Don't end up on the wrong side of the door, for a day is coming when the opportunity to trust in Jesus will be taken away. A convenient myth that most people like to believe is that they're nearer to heaven than they are to hell. Most people don't see themselves like Jesus does in verse 27. Whereas Jesus calls these seekers strangers and workers of evil, most people think they're genuinely good. In fact, in one study, it said 67% of Americans said, most people are basically good even though everyone sins a little bit. Good, according to God's perfect law, means that your life must be completely blameless. Not one lie, 
Not one outburst of rage, not one feeling of lust, not one envious desire, and most of all, not a single moment where you failed to worship the one true God as the Creator and King. The truth that the Scriptures reveal is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in the kingdom of God, every sinner is treated in God's courtroom exactly the same way. They're treated as an enemy rebel against the one true King. Thankfully, though, there is hope for sinners. Our God is a king of justice, but he's also a God of love and mercy. And God has made one way for sinners to enter into his house. And that one way through Jesus Christ, uh, he is the one who has the key to open the door. The door to the Lord's house is open. It's open to us because of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Whether you've been waiting for salvation, curious about salvation, seeking salvation, or you're far from it, trust in Jesus as your Savior. Only then can you disarm the gates to heaven, experience forgiveness, and enter into the Lord's open house. Don't end up knocking on the wrong side of the door. Jesus' picture of hell in verse 28 is pretty grim. Here he says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Now I think one of the gravest torments of hell is how close it is to heaven. Jesus tells us that those who miss out will be able to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the prophets. They will be able to see everyone else from around the world who got in. You know, I would imagine that being so close to salvation and missing out would be like getting stuck in a small black room alone and by myself. In this room, there is nothing but a window and a locked door. Through the window, I would watch the most incredible, joyous celebration I've ever seen and then think about all the times I was invited to that celebration and decided not to come. Instead, I decided to wait to be convinced. Instead, I started seeking when it was too late. Jesus says that in that room there will be weeping. This is because those who miss out will be tormented by regret. They will weep pondering what-if questions for all eternity. What if I had just listened? What if I had just kept coming to church? What if I had just trusted in Jesus? But not only is hell a place of regret, we're told by Jesus that it is a place of deep hatred and resentment where the outcast in hell grind their teeth in rage, furious at themselves for missing out, but even more furious for Jesus for not letting them through the door. Our culture has so characterized hell with pitchforks and red-horned demons, but the torment of hell is the same for fallen angels as it is for outcast human beings. Both will be forced to witness the unending worship and praise of redeemed sinners before the almighty triune God, while also knowing they will never, never be given the opportunity to experience the joyous sensation of being with their Creator. Hell is real. 
So whatever you do, make certain that you don't miss out. It may seem good to be curious, but curiosity alone is not enough to save you. It may seem good to be near, but proximity alone is not enough to save you. Don't wait for salvation to come to you. Don't seek for salvation when it's too late. Rather, strive for salvation in Jesus Christ. According to Jesus in Luke 13, 24, the only approach that will lead us to finding salvation is to strive to enter through the narrow door. Don't wait. Don't seek. Strive. One of my favorite pictures of what it looks like to strive is back in Luke 9, where Jesus says, No one who puts his hand to the plow looks back uh, and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how many of you here have plowed fields before. I certainly haven't. Um, but I'm sure most of us have probably seen a push mower before. And, you know, pushing a lawnmower while looking backwards is a strategy for disaster. Um, for years, my parents had an old push mower. Uh, it looked like this. Um, it was duct taped together to keep from leaking gasoline everywhere. Uh, if you were going to get that mower working, you had to make a serious effort. And once you got it started, there was no way that you'd be looking back over your shoulder while you were mowing the lawn. Otherwise, you might end up running into a rock and breaking the blades. You'd swerve to one side and have an even uneven cut. Or you'd push the mower into a hole and then spill gasoline all over the yard. And I'll confess, I've experienced all three of these lawn mowing disasters. In English, the word strive can be understood in a couple of ways. In the New Testament, the word strive here doesn't mean earning merit or accumulating good deeds. Jesus is not saying, do as much good work as possible in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Instead, what strive really means here is to struggle hard. Striving requires a level of intensity much higher than seeking or waiting. Someone who strives to find something is someone who is willing to struggle to, f to find what they're searching for. They have a willingness to struggle to follow Jesus. Jesus is saying that the person who is fit to enter through the narrow door into the kingdom of heaven is the person who not only trusts Jesus to save them, but is the person who is willing to struggle hard and is willing to suffer for their Savior all the days of their life without looking back. Now, if you're like me, you didn't probably start off striving to follow Jesus. Perhaps you were curious for a time, and as your curiosity grew, the Holy Spirit drew you nearer and nearer. You waited at first, but then you began to seek, and then you realized Jesus was calling you to strive. Although you may not remember it, there was a moment when you began to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and from that moment on, your life began to change as you continued to strive to follow Him. In this last part of the sermon, we're going to just look at three marks of how striving Christians find salvation. Uh, the first mark is that striving is hard because the door to heaven is narrow. 
Those who strive to follow Jesus know that entering into heaven is not as easy as most people want to think. Many who wait for salvation and many who seek for salvation get led astray by this idea that everyone will be saved. Remember, any can be saved, but not all will be saved. This is, in fact, what prompts the curious person in the crowd to ask Jesus, will those who are saved be few? But there is a reason that Jesus says that the door to heaven is narrow. You know, if you've ever been on vacation before and you've got a lot of luggage, or if you've tried moving large furniture from one room to another, coming across a narrow door can be a particular challenge. When the architect designed that door, he designed it for the purpose of allowing a single person to move through at a time, not for all the stuff that they're trying to carry with them. One of the reasons why it is hard to enter heaven is that people are not willing to drop all the stuff they're carrying in order to fit through the door. You cannot expect to finish the race, to run with endurance, or to make it through the narrow door if you're burdened by a desire for the world that you won't let go of. Some are so close to salvation. They're so close that they can see it. But there is a burden, there is an anxiety, a fear, or a sin in their lives that they just aren't willing to release to Jesus. The striving Christian knows they've got to let go of everything and give everything to Jesus if they're truly going to make it through heaven's narrow door. Repentance is not easy, but if you're willing to turn from your way and to follow Jesus' way, then you certainly aren't going to miss out. In his commentary, Matthew Henry depicts striving as a lifelong battle. This is what he writes. He says, Those that would enter in at the straight gate must strive to enter. It is a hard matter to get to heaven, and a point that will not be gained without a great deal of care and pains of difficulty and diligence. We must strive with God in prayer, wrestle as Jacob, strive against sin and Satan. One of the great blessings of being in the church, though, is that we don't have to strive alone. Not only do we have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us when we're down, but God is with us. He hears our prayers, He speaks through His Word, and He guides us by the Holy Spirit. It may be a hard matter to enter heaven, but when we are striving together, united in Christ, nothing is impossible. The second mark is that striving is glorious because the banquet in heaven is absolutely incredible. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Luke 13, 29 through 30. Uh, here Jesus says, And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. To begin to really comprehend the grandeur of this description of God's kingdom, I want you to take a moment to think about your best memories. What's a best memory that maybe comes to mind? You know, maybe what might come to mind for you is the excitement 
of waking up with your family like on a snowy Christmas morning. It might be the joy of holding your newborn child for the very first time. Uh, Perhaps that sense of accomplishment, like celebrating a long anniversary, like 50 years of marriage to your best friend. Or maybe the tears of happiness you shed watching a prodigal loved one finally return. You know, in God's grace, He gives us powerful memories. But even your best memories are just a tiny foretaste of the incredible experience of what it's like to enter into heaven. How wonderful to be seated at Christ's table, reclining with Him in the kingdom. There in God's unveiled presence, you will no longer feel any sorrow, any regret, or any shame. You will no longer feel anxious or exhausted or weary. You will feel fulfilled. Those in the Lord's house will experience more abounding joy and love in a mere second than they would have experienced their entire lifetime. You know, though the door to heaven is narrow and the way is hard, getting into heaven will certainly be worth it. In heaven, there will be all kinds of people who God has saved. People from every place in the world, every time period in history, and every status in society. You know, the door to heaven has been opened, and it is filling up with heroes of old like Abraham and Jacob and David. It is filling up with new believers from places like Panama and India and Africa. It is filling up with Christians who are striving hard and not looking back. And it is even filling up with the kinds of people who've trusted Christ that we would least expect. Jesus says, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Even the least of those in this world who trust in Jesus Christ Even they can be confident that they are in a far better position before God to enter heaven than those who have it all in this world. For those of you that are striving hard, don't let your status in this life consume you, and don't let anything cause you to give up. You won't want to miss out on the majesty of salvation. Finally, the third mark is that striving is possible. It is possible because our place in heaven is prepared. Entering into heaven is hard. Entering into heaven is glorious, but perhaps most importantly, Jesus tells us that entering into heaven is possible. It would be worrisome to follow Jesus without any confidence that he could actually save you. The possibility of salvation is something that many people doubt, but the Christian does not have to doubt it. Again, in Luke 13, 29, Jesus assures us that not just the Israelites will enter heaven, but all kinds of people from all around the world. Additionally, we're told a small detail in Luke 13, 22. We are told that Jesus himself is journeying toward Jerusalem. This may seem insignificant, but it foreshadows one of the most important events in the entire Bible. For you see, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, and he's not turning back. His father's house has many rooms, but no sinner could be permitted to enter. So God, in his overwhelming love and grace, gave his one and only son to take the punishment that the world deserved. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, and again, he's not turning back. 
Nothing could stop him from accomplishing God's redemptive plan. For in Jerusalem, no fate more painful, no punishment more cruel than crucifixion itself awaited the Savior. Jesus had set his face to Jerusalem, and again he didn't turn back. He had gone before us into death, not in vain. No, the Savior had gone before us to rise to new life in order to prepare our place in heaven. If you're struggling hard to follow Jesus, cast your sins, cast your doubts, and cast your burdens upon him. Strive with greater hope, greater prayers, and greater songs. Strive when it's hard because you know heaven is glorious and salvation is possible. For if nothing could stop Jesus from taking your punishment on the cross in Jerusalem, then nothing will stop Jesus from saving those who strive. No matter what we might be facing this week, let us all be willing to struggle to follow Jesus. Let us strive. Let us strive to enter through the beautiful, narrow door of heaven. Let us strive with great expectations of our Lord, and let us strive with great exaltations to the one true King. At the end of it all, there's only one question that remains. Will you be getting in, or will you be missing out? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, help us all to strive with faith to enter through the narrow door. God, we confess that many times we give up far too easily. God, we've often been more satisfied with entertaining our own curiosity than living according to your truth. God, we've tried to gain victory over our sins and our own effort, and God, sometimes that leaves us feeling overwhelmed. God, we've heard you calling us to follow, but we are far too easily pleased with ourselves to let go of worldly trinkets and status and treasures. Father God, please forgive us. Lord, renew our hearts with your Holy Spirit and lead us into repentance. Help us to strive in our prayers, to strive against sin, to strive in our worship. God, let us not take your gifts of grace for granted, God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your Son to die in our stead so that the doors of heaven might be open for sinners like us. God, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, all your people said, Amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.